Hey, May 40 here. Let's uh, see what Tucker Carlson has to say. Let's go to the top. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight you're hearing a lot of posturing about student loan debt. But actually, some of it's true. Student loan debt really has crushed a generation, maybe multiple generations, of American young people. If you're wondering why your kids aren't married or even living on their own, student loan debt may be a big part of the reason. They can't afford to. They're in hock to some well-manicured diploma mill whose degree turned out to be worth a lot less than advertised. A five-year communications major from Arizona State? Perfect! Step right this way. You're now a barista in a strip mall. The whole thing's a scam, obviously. Think timeshares in Cabo, but without the waterfront condos. We've said all of this many times on the show. College debt is real. It's hurting young people, and there's really no good reason for it. So when Joe Biden announced today that he plans to cancel some of that debt, the obvious response would be to celebrate the announcement. But we didn't right away. Instead, we paused to learn the details about what he was proposing. That's a habit we've picked up from watching people like Joe Biden in action over the past several years. It's always worth reading the fine print. These are the very same people, after all, who decided it was a good idea somehow to defund the police. They're the ones who forced the entire American population to take an experimental COVID vaccine even when it became obvious that it didn't work. These are the people who sent crack pipes to crack addicts, the ones who think 16-year-olds should vote in presidential elections, the ones who screamed at you about how Ukraine's borders are sacrosanct, but yours are racist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are people, in other words, with a long and public track record of very bad ideas, extraordinarily bad ideas, ideas so stupid you couldn't make them up. So the question is, is this idea different? We want it to be. But unfortunately, it's not. And here's how you know it's not. Colleges so the aren't is, refunding any of the loan money. You are. You are. But wait, you say. I didn't defraud anyone. I didn't claim that a degree in post-colonial liberation studies from Wesleyan would be worth anything. I didn't take 80 grand a year from middle-class families in order to turn their children into Xanax-addicted robots with no job prospects. Well, no, you didn't do any of that. But you're paying reparations anyway. Wesleyan's not. Wesleyan's off the hook. They all are. They'll pay nothing for the scam they perpetrated, though they're a lot richer than you will ever be. No, you're paying. It's on you. Does that seem fair? Well, no, it's not. But it's how Washington works. Politicians reward their donors first. They're first in line. Joe Biden knows this really may be demented, but he remembers that. Consider the 2005 bankruptcy law, which has gotten not enough attention. That's one of Joe Biden's few legislative achievements in his 36 years in the U.S. Senate. That law prevented borrowers from discharging, getting rid of credit card debt and private student loans in bankruptcy. All other kinds of debt could be discharged, but not credit card debt. Weird. Who benefited from that? Well, credit card companies. Where were they based? Delaware. And those companies also happened to be Joe Biden's biggest donors. So they wanted his support on this bankruptcy bill, which would prevent people from getting out from under the debt they incurred at their exorbitant rates on their credit cards. So to get his support, the bank, MBNA, bought Joe Biden's home for several times its actual value. MBNA also hired Joe Biden's ne'er-do-well son, Hunter, speaking of crack addicts, and paid Hunter Biden more than a hundred grand a year as a consultant from 2001 to 2005. How corrupt is that? Well, unimaginably corrupt, un-American, shocking. But that's what happened. And a lot of Americans suffered as a result. That legislation hurt people. In the subsequent decades, student loan debt tripled. 
Americans' average credit card debt went up by thousands of dollars. But Joe Biden didn't care because the point of the bill was not to help Americans. The point of the bill was to reward his biggest donors, and it did. Is that what we're seeing here? Well, let's see. Where is Joe Biden's core base of support as of August 2022? Well, no group in America supports Joe Biden more fervently still than college administrators, one of the fastest growing job categories in this country. How's that for depressing? There are hundreds of thousands of college administrators in the United States, and most of them have master's degrees. As you can see from this chart, that group overwhelmingly donates to the Democratic Party. People employed in the education industry, and that's what it is, it's an industry, gave nearly $300 million to Democrats in 2020. They gave $30 million to Republicans. Talk about lopsided. So these administrators are the very beneficiaries of the single greatest scam currently underway in the United States. We send tax dollars to colleges who don't need them in the form of government-backed loans. But instead of lowering tuition for you, they hike tuition every year at a rate far faster than the rise in inflation. Then they use those profits to hire more useless, unhappy, anti-American administrators, all while failing to give your kids even a basic education in anything that's worth something. And then, because all of that isn't insulting and destructive enough, the government rewards them and exempts these very places from paying taxes. In our tax code, universities are treated like charities, though they are very much not charities, at all. And if you pay the bill, you know, but they don't pay taxes. And that's why their endowments are bigger than the GDP of some countries. Harvard's endowment is over $41 billion. Yale's over 30. Stanford and Princeton over 25. University of Texas bigger than them all. So it doesn't matter what they call themselves. These places are not colleges or universities. They are hedge funds with classrooms attached. And if there's anyone in the United States that doesn't need more government money, it's the higher education lobby. But today, Joe Biden threw them more. He decided to give these colleges, these hedge funds, more of your money. And you shouldn't be surprised because he just rewarded his private equity donors, and there are many of those, by preserving the carried interest loophole. That just happened earlier this month. Your taxes are going up. They're paying half the rate that you are. So today, Biden announced he's going to force taxpayers to cover $300 billion worth of student loans. Now, you may remember that the Inflation Reduction Act was supposed to reduce the deficit by $100 billion. Oops, sorry, there goes that, 3X. Biden also announced that his voters don't have to repay their loans anytime soon, certainly not before the midterms. Student loan payment pause is going to end. It's going to end December 30. I'm extending to December 31st, 2022. And it's going to end. We will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. Both of these targeted actions are for families who need it the most. Working and middle-class people hit especially hard during the pandemic making under $125,000 a year. You make more than that, you don't qualify. You can kind of see the appeal of Joe Biden in this. So you must remember Joe Biden. He's been around since the beginning of time, and he was this kind of cheerful, working-class guy. Oh, I'm from Scranton. Now he's just a husk. He has no idea what he's saying. But the image of Joe Biden still resonates in your head. He's for the middle class. Of course, it's the opposite of that. If you wanted to help the middle class, you would send 
$10,000 to every family with a head of household who lays concrete or every truck driver in the country. But that's not what he's doing. If he wanted to do that, he would force colleges with $30 billion endowments to cover this loan forgiveness. He would also talk about mortgage loans and credit card debt, which are much bigger problems for most people. Card debt. Instead, Joe Biden is talking about what his supporters, the NPR community, cares about, and that's student debt. And he's making you pay for it. According to The Wall Street Journal, more than 70% of the loans that Joe Biden just canceled that you're going to be now responsible for are held by borrowers in the top 60% of income distribution. Oh, and that makes sense because only about 38% of all Americans have a college degree. Maybe everyone in your neighborhood, but only 38% of the country. And only 13% have graduate degrees. And guess how much student loan debt is held by people with graduate degrees? Can you guess? About 56%. Oh, so it's nonprofit administrators who are benefiting from this. Certainly college administrators are benefiting. We just told you that. But there will be other beneficiaries, all of whom reliably support the Democratic Party. That would include Harvard Law graduates. And that's why professional buffoon and former Harvard Law professor Larry Tribe is celebrating today's announcement. Quote, he wrote on Twitter, his metier, good news for my thousands of former students. I'm grateful on their behalf, Mr. President. Oh, you slobbering suck up. Shut up, Larry Tribe. But imagine bragging that Harvard Law students are out from under the crushing debt. How out of it do you have to be to send something like that? So it's a good day for Harvard Law grads. They're in trouble, they need your help. Thanks to Joe Biden, many of them now get to take at least 10 grand off their outstanding student loan bill and you're paying the difference. And what's weird, what's missing from Larry Tribe's analysis is whether the president can actually do that legally. Like, who cares, I guess, now? But if you're a law professor, you should probably care. It wasn't long ago that Nancy Pelosi, you've probably seen this clip, we've been running all day, but we're going to see it again. Nancy Pelosi pointed out that actually the president can't do this. Only Congress can do this. Here's Nancy Pelosi. People think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would that has to be an act of Congress. That would have to be an act of Congress. Well, that was last year, but we've repainted the slogans on the side of the barn. And it turns out Joe Biden can do whatever the hell he wants because Susan Rice works for him. Get out of her way. Just as with the eviction moratorium, the Biden administration decided we're just going to ignore the law. Donors are too important. All of this is totally backward, legal or not. If you actually wanted to improve the United States of America, you would think deeply about how to help people who never went to college in the first place. And then, moving down the hierarchy, you would reward the people who worked hard to pay for college themselves. They deserve something. They followed the rules. You can't ignore them. And once you've made them whole, you would think about helping the millions of people who scrimped, sometimes with low-paying jobs, to pay off their college loans. Again, who did it the right way. There's got to be a reward for them. What's the incentive to do the right thing if there isn't? Well, Biden was asked well, about that today by our Peter Ducey. He ran away. Watch. Mr. President, is this unfair to people who paid their student loans or chose not to take out loans? Is it fair to people who, in fact, uh, do not own multi-billion dollar businesses to see why these guys give them all the tax breaks? Is that fair? What do you think? Huh? We're trying hard. Maybe we're too literal here. What the hell did that mean? We have no idea. He had no idea. 
So they haven't answered the question. How does it make any sense to punish the people who did the right thing, who paid their loans off? And there are a lot of those because Americans are law-abiding people. They want to do the right thing. It's the law. They don't need 87,000 new armed IRS agents to do the right thing. They're Americans. They want to do the right thing. That's the overwhelming majority of the country. So what about them? What do they get in exchange for doing the right thing voluntarily? Well, Elizabeth Warren was actually asked this maybe two years ago. Here's her response. I don't care. I just want to ask one question. My daughter's getting out of school. I've saved all my money. She doesn't have any student loans. Am I going to get my money back? Of course not. So you're going to pay for people who didn't save any money, and those of us who did the right thing get screwed. No, it's not even like that's screwed. Of course we did. My buddy had fun, bought a car, went on vacations. I saved my money. He made more than I did. But I worked a double shift, worked extra. My daughter's work, she was 10. So you're laughing. I'm going to add with Oh, so there's one guy in America who still cares about fairness. Remember fairness? If you want to have a functioning society, things have to be fair. If people believe things are fair, they will voluntarily comply with the rules. But the second they realize things are stacked against them, are inherently unfair, and the people in charge don't care about fairness, they will do all they can to shirk their responsibilities and to ignore the rules. That's why no one in Greece pays taxes, because they think the system is rigged. Presidents should not accelerate that degradation of public spirit. Again, if you wanted to improve the country by dispersing billions of tax dollars, you would help people like the guy you just saw who worked hard to pay his debts. And then if you really wanted to go forward with debt forgiveness and you could make an argument for that, who would you award it to? Well, you would award it to people who might conceivably improve the country you live in. Who would that be? Well, let's see, dental and veterinary students, structural engineering majors, people who did something useful in college. But you would never in a million years even consider giving a tax subsidy to lawyers or gender studies majors or diversity administrators. Why? Because you don't want more of those people. We have way too many of them already. And then you would never send money to anyone who supported BLM riots or anyone who claimed on Twitter that America is a systemically racist country. Why would you send them money? Why would you send the fruits of America to people who hate America? What is that? It's suicidal. No sane person would do that. So what you're watching, as always, is class warfare. They reward the top and the bottom, people who don't need it and people who aren't trying. And then they crush the struggling middle, the law-abiding, the people who want to do the right thing, who have collective spirit. They hurt those people. Why would you forgive the college debt of someone who spent six years majoring in oppression studies at Long Beach State? You would only do that if you're engaging in the ugliest kind of partisan politics. Reward my voters. It's the equivalent of paying people to watch Joy Reid. It's like subsidizing an NPR pledge drive. The message, they do not care about you at all. And they're no longer pretending. J.D. Vance is very well educated and still very sensible. Running for Senate in Ohio, he joins us tonight. J.D. Vance, I know that you are very concerned about student loan debt. Any person looks at the numbers is. Is this the way to address it? I know it's certainly not, Tucker. I mean, you hit the nail on the head that this is effectively a bailout for a super corrupt educational system. The Harvard Endowment has $60 billion. The Yale Endowment has $40 billion. If you want to give student debt relief, you should penalize the people who have benefited from this very corrupt system, right. not ask plumbers in Ohio to subsidize the life decisions of, of, of college Okay, I agree with Tucker Carlson. I agree with J.D. Vance. I, I don't like subsidizing deadbeats. I don't know about you, but when I was 18, 
<clears throat> I, I took it for granted that I'd have to pay my own way through college, right? I, I never expected my, my family to pay. I was not looking to take out loans. Instead, I worked. And some weeks I worked 40 hours a week. Other weeks I worked 90 hours a week. So I saved over $40,000 working construction jobs, often while going to college at the same time and uh, working at a radio station at the same time. So I worked myself into, you know, pretty bad health, health problem, chronic fatigue syndrome, because I, I was just go, go, go. I would, I would get up at 4 a.m. I'd, I'd study calculus. That was my toughest subject. I'd study calculus from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. Then I'd eat breakfast, drive to school, put in another hour or so of calculus. Then I'd take classes from about 8 a.m. till about noon, 1 p.m. Then I'd go work landscaping from about uh, 1.30, 2 p.m. until uh, about 8 p.m., go home, eat, eat dinner, and go to bed, start all over again, work on, on the weekend. So my heart is not rejoicing at uh, the prospect of people with massive student loans getting $10,000 forgiven. I don't have any student loan debt. I paid my own way through, through college. Now, to kind of put it in perspective, however, Obamacare, right? let's remember Obamacare. Obamacare, for, for a decade of Obamacare, it's going to cost us about $1.7 trillion. And that's overwhelmingly a transference of of money from productive citizens to much less uh, productive citizens. And so too, with this student loan forgiveness, we are incentivizing and subsidizing uh, bad behavior. And the $10,000 loan forgiveness is going to cost about $300 billion supposedly for a decade. And then the Pell Grant forgiveness is going to cost about another $170 billion. So it looks like this student loan forgiveness is going to cost us about as much as a third of Obamacare. So I wasn't a big fan of Obamacare. I'm not a big fan in general of subsidizing uh, bad behavior, right? I think, I think that's a really bad idea. I think we should, we should try to subsidize good behavior, incentivize good behavior instead of incentivizing you know, bad behavior. That's just nuts. So, I mean, how should one react when the news doesn't go your way, when the news is upsetting, when the, when the news is infuriating? So, like, what's an adaptive response to, to the news just for your own emotional well-being? So it seems to me that on stories like this, that uh, from, from a conventional, traditional, middle-class, working-class point of view are outrageous, right, where where plumbers and workers are subsidizing people who are irresponsible with their student loan debt, what's an adaptive response? And I think in the moment you feel everything that you feel. So if you're at like an 8 out of 10 in rage about this, that, that seems normal, reasonable, responsible, but you don't want to walk around with an 8 out of 10 in rage day after day, right? Just walking around, bend out of shape over political things that you can have no influence over that you can't change, that seems maladaptive to me. So it just seems to me that if, if the news gets you down, if you become upset in the moment, all right, for, for a few days after, say, an election doesn't go your way, that, that seems like a normal response. You're losing, for example, an America that you love. You're, 
you're you're losing your your sense of your tradition of your country. You feel like the enemy have taken power. But to walk around with that burden on your shoulder, with that chip on your shoulder, that seems maladaptive if it's over things over which you have no control. So it seems to me that uh, walking around with about a two out of ten chip on your shoulder, about a two out of a ten resentment for you don't like the direction of the country, you don't like one particular political party, you don't like the president, you don't like what's going on in, in Congress, maybe a two out of ten, because that connects you to other people who feel similarly, right? There's nothing more important than connection. Also, it kind of gives you purpose and meaning in life. You're going to have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. You, you know, feel like the country's going down, down a bad path. So you get connection, you get meaning, you get purpose. You know who your group is and you know who the out group is. So it seems to me that, that walking around with kind of a, a two out of 10 intensity with regard to an out group, with regard to politics, with regard to things that are going on that are out of your control, that seems adaptive. But what if you're walking around with like a five out of 10 so that it is quite noticeable Right? If you're walking around with an intensity level of resentment at a 5 out of 10, that seems maladaptive because a lot of people are going to pick up on that and a lot of people are not going to want to hang out with you know, people who are just kind of frequently vibrating or on the edge of great rage and resentment. And it just doesn't seem like a happy place to be. Let's have a look at the chat. From the land of the free to the land of the freeloader. Republicans better fight it. They're using some Heroes Act and COVID as an excuse when they say every day that things are so great. They don't get to the real issue of 8% a year of uh, in inflation and uh, tuitions. The high school kids now will pay so much more. Where, where's my $10,000, right? So, yes, that was the first time ever. I remember Tucker saying, I'm now going to ad lib. I, I think I've heard him say something like that before. Uh, so that's not the, the first time I've, I've heard that. But... Over things over which you have no control, uh, what's your perspective? Do you really benefit? Are you better off? Are you happier? Are you more effective in life if you walk around with a resentment level of a four, five, six, seven, eight, nine? I don't think so. Over things over which you have no control, probably want to hang out at around a two or a three. Now, on occasion, that's going to skyrocket to an eight, nine, ten. Right. I mean, we're human. We, we need to feel things. But I don't think you want to hang out with, with a, just this you know, pulsating sense of rage over things over which you have uh, no control. Now, this is the mayor of Banff. Like Banff is just a gorgeous, gorgeous city in uh, Canada. So, I mean... Let's look at her and let's let's celebrate that joy and let's celebrate female empowerment and let's let's allow our female politicians to you know to dance and to swear and to love and let their hair turn gray. All right, so she she's tweeting here, you don't have to tell me twice, it's in reaction to women woman politicians, please keep swearing, keep dancing, keep growing your beautiful gray hair. Keep standing up and keep pushing back because every time you do, you make it easier for the next generation of young women to stand up and serve their communities just like you. I think she's absolutely adorable. I mean, I, I think she's lovely. I mean, I'm impressed. I mean, she, she can dance for me. 
Dance, dance, dance. But if you really want to know my type, you're probably wondering, like, who is 40s type? Right. This is 40s type. Folks, we have made it to the very last episode, the series finale for Better Call Saul, Saul Gone. And it was perfect. In my opinion, it was the perfect series finale for this show. It satisfied everything that I was hoping it would. It resolved all of the unresolved conflicts. I going into this, and you if you saw my breakdown for Waterworks, heard me say that I was hoping for a couple of things. One, that Jimmy would atone. Two, we would get some sort of closure between these two characters. And three, that they would be okay. Not just survive, but be okay. And we got all three of those things. And it was uh, it was a beautiful finale. I enjoyed every second of it. And, um, and I cried my eyes out. I bawled my eyes out through it as evidenced by my home security. Yeah, this one made me an emotional wreck. Hi, my name is Courtney and- She's adorable. I mean, she's a married woman. I'm just saying this with the the utmost respect, but uh, Courtney's Reviews, it's a new YouTube channel. So far, it's only done videos on Better Call Saul. But she's adorable. She seems to have some kind of English literature background, very insightful with uh, regard to Better Call Saul. So that's my type. My God. Okay. Let me go to some chats I had with uh, with some friends today. They, they were not happy about, uh, <laughs> about the news. And uh, one bloke says, Laponius, the truth doesn't care about your delusion. What delusions, bro? You're, you're mad at Emmanuel Macron, Laponius, but maybe it's you who needs to change your expectations. You don't deserve prosperity. That's a delusion. You deserve whatever table scraps the elites give you. Now, go and buy a subscription to the New York Times. So, so some of my friends can imitate me better than, than I can. And uh, Fred says, the main reason I don't trust Trump is that he subjected us all to Dr. Fauci in the vax. He didn't subject you. Dr. Fauci was running his his bureaucracy for, for many decades prior to Trump. Uh, Trump didn't subject you to the vax. I mean, Trump helped push Operation Warp Speed so that we got the vax. But my friend says, oh, this shows major lack of good judgment. It's not like he's less beholden to the West Palm Beach crowd. Oi, curl it with the anti-Semitism than run DeSantis. Think we may just have to accept the fact that Trump is dumb and surrounds himself with yes men who tell him how smart he is. Trump is surrounded by financiers and shysters of all types. Well, he wants to be with his own kind, right? Okay, my friend claims America has a Nathan Kaufness problem. So is that saying that we have unelected experts running things a la Tony Fauci? So experts who are beyond the reach of the people? So that the will of the people is not sovereign, it is subject to expertise. That uh, expertise and democracy at odds. All right, here's some good news. What's going on? Penn Medical School expands minority candidate program that does not require an MCAT. Eligible students are those from backgrounds underrepresented in medicine. So currently... 
black and Latino students who get into medical school have on average a GPA of four point like below that of whites and Asians who get rejected from medical school. But why would you want expertise, competence when it comes to doctors? University of Pennsylvania has expanded a program that admits minorities and other underrepresented college applicants into its medical school under special criteria, waiving the medical college admissions test requirement. It's officially broadened this year to include students from historically black colleges. But students must have a cumulative minimum 3.0 GPA. Wow. Wow. So really, we're going to start playing with, with matters of life and death to start lowering standards. We're going to start taking shortcuts with, with basic knowledge necessary for developing the skills to diagnose and properly treat diseases. That's, uh, that's insane. Now, perhaps the, the one good thing about America's litigiousness, one good thing is that uh, Americans are not going to stand for suboptimal medical treatment. Americans will just sue. Already, uh, black doctors are disproportionately sued for medical malpractice. So doctors who aren't particularly competent, they all effectively, I would assume, get sued to the sidelines. So maybe America's litigiousness will, will save us here. Okay, uh, Michael Tracy tweets, whatever the merits of canceling student debt, Joe Biden claiming the authority to do so based on a law passed after 9-11 to provide relief to borrowers is totally absurd. So Biden is using the war in Ukraine to give freeloaders a free ride at the expense of productive citizens. So yeah, Biden won't address the concerns of unfairness for those who sacrificed to pay off their student debt. And a friend of mine, he worked in an office sitting next to an AIDS-riddled homosexual for two years. And I got the worst pneumonia of my life in that office. And my friend attributes it to him. Bro, this AIDS-riddled homosexual is a human being. He's a friend that you haven't made yet. And my friend says, I did this to pay off my student loans. I ripped up about this. Look, if, if you're working in an office with, with people that you can't stand, uh, maybe the problem's not with the people you can't stand, and maybe the problem's not with the government. Maybe the primary problem is you made some bad choices in life so that you're stuck in what may be a hellish situation. <laughs> My friend says, well, I'm going to read the New York Times and see how I'm supposed to feel. Yeah, and, and his is someone uh, imitating my my rhetoric. Yeah, literal AIDS-ridden homosexuals exist. They live amongst us, and if you catch pneumonia, some other disease from one of them, it's on you. <laughs> Probable 40 take, yeah. Say it with a classic 40 accent and panache. <laughs> it makes sense. Oh, man, Ronald, Ron DeSantis is not going to miss And I'm just sick Fauci. of seeing him. I know he says he's going to retire. Someone needs to grab that little elf and chuck him across the Potomac. Okay. 
So what's the right amount of uh, rage to walk around with? I'd say a two out of ten. Hey, anyone see Vengeance? This is a terrific movie. It just came out. Uh, stars uh, B.J. Novak. So it's it's about a New Yorker writer. And he, he ends up uh, hooking up with a woman who dies. And he gets kind of coerced into going to Texas to attend a funeral while there. He kind of gets coerced into pursuing her killer, and he comes to realization that there there might be a good uh, podcast out of this. So, how many wise do I put in hay at this time of night? Is it before two a.m.? Yeah, two wise. Okay. So this is the beginning Three of the movie. He's talking with his uh, friend, and one is about hooking up. Kurt. You know what I was thinking about? Cookie dough became so popular. It's because it's not finished. It could still be anything. 100%. Making cookies out of cookie dough is just a suggestion. 100%. That's what they say you could do. With right. It. And the same thing, like dating someone for more than a month is just a serving suggestion. 100%. Kara, question mark? That means I don't remember where I met her. Okay. But it's a question mark with an exclamation point, which means I should want to follow up. Let's see what the options are first. Yes, thing. exactly that. That's the world that so it's a terrific movie about uh, red state versus blue state. So you've got this liberal new yorker liberal writer for the new yorker and uh, he ends up heading off to texas we're living in you can just see what the options are for anything like with travel you're not going to just pick the first flight you see you want to see all the flights that's a good thing you get the best flight that way why wouldn't you get the best person by looking at all the potential people and how and uh, the chat says where do people get the energy to maintain ongoing rage they knew here on this planet well i think uh, speaking for myself uh, rage gave me a ton of energy. So I think for a lot of people, rage gives them energy. And uh, it's it's a uh, potent potent source of, of power and energy. Could you even expect to find one person who could fulfill all of your needs? It's easier just to find the most supportive person here, the funniest person here, the best sex here, right. the best advice here, the second best sex here. 100%. I don't ever want to go past knowing what someone's parents do for a living. If I know what someone's parents do for a living, right. I've hung too long. Right. Or like siblings. Like, why does anyone want to know about your siblings? Especially so early. Yeah. How many siblings? Has that ever changed whether you want to date somebody? It's like, yeah. I have two sisters and brother. Well, hold well on. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. You know what I'd I say? I only date only children or the oldest of... Okay, so then he uh, he hooks up and he gets a phone call, an unexpected phone call from some dude in Texas while he's uh, sleeping with some other woman. This is the worst phone call you're ever going to get in your life. Oh, God. Your girlfriend's dead. I'm sorry, what did you say? She's dead. No, no, the first part? Your girlfriend. Yeah, I'm sorry. Hey, I don't, I don't understand. I know, I know, I know. We can't make no sense of it either. Who is this? This is Ty Shaw, Abby's brother. Um, hey, I don't, I don't really know what to say. Yeah, this girl he hooked up with a so couple of times. I'm so sorry. Has ended up Abby dead. Told us so much about you. Abby. Oh my God. Abby. Who's that? Uh, some girl. Um, Who's that? Uh, some. We definitely hung out a few times. I I wouldn't have. Funeral Sunday. Oh my God! I'm. Uh, can you tell me where I can send flowers? 
Oh, no, 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 no. I'm absolutely going to send flowers. Just, uh, you tell me the address if you can text you it to really me. really want, there's a flower shop by the airport. We'll just swing by there when I pick you up. When you pick me up? Ah, <laughs> uh, hey, I will be there in spirit. Spirit Airlines, I mean, that's a great choice. You just let me know what flight. Uh, hey, uh, I, this is just, I can't do this. All right, Vengeance is the name of the movie. Just, just came out. Red state, blue state, America. Okay. Okay, don't cry. I mean, no, cry, cry. Um, of course. Be in touch with your emotions. Um, okay, all right. Um, hey, remind me where you guys are. Exactly. So he ends up uh, going to Texas and uh, hijinks ensue. So a uh, terrific movie there. It's called Vengeance. All right, let's check out Tucker. Liberals try to control language because they understand, unlike conservatives, that words really matter. Words define ideas. Words make ideas possible. And euphemisms are their specialty. Now, euphemism is by definition a lie. Euphemism is a turn of phrase designed to hide the fact that the person using it either has no idea what he's talking about or is trying to lie to you about what he's talking about. So here's our new favorite euphemism. The experts are using the term minor attracted persons in place of pedophile. Minor attracted persons. Huh. Here's some examples. Want to talk about minor attracted persons because they are probably the most vilified population of folks in our culture. And you may have noticed that I'm using the term minor attracted persons, sometimes abbreviated to MAPS, instead of the more commonly used term pedophile. MAP advocacy groups, like Before You Act, um, have advocated for use of the term MAP. Um, they've advocated for it primarily because it's less stigmatizing than other terms like pedophile. Uh, a lot of people, when they hear the term pedophile, they automatically assume that it means a sex offender. Uh, and that isn't true. And it leads to a lot of misconceptions about attractions toward minors. Yeah, we're being too tough on the kid touchers. The Protasia Foundation, look that up if you have 10 minutes. Brother Calvin Robinson is an Anglican deacon in the UK, one of the last sane people in that denomination. We're grateful to have him join us tonight. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Robinson, thank you so much uh, for coming on tonight. So minor attracted person, what, what do you make of that? Tucker, let's not mince our words here. This is the greatest evil there is. What we're talking about is the normalization of pedophilia. That is all we're seeing here. And you're right, they're reclaiming the words. They're taking over the language and defining it in a very clever way. Because once they say, these are not pedophiles, these are minor attracted people, they can say they're also vilified, as we heard there, persecuted. And then they'll say they are an oppressed minority group, and therefore they deserve to be a protected characteristic. And then all of a sudden we have pedophiles or pedophiles being protected under the law. And that's what they're after here. And it's very, very, there's nothing more dangerous. Well, that's right. And it's a tell. I mean, if you are with someone on the playground or at your kid's school who uses the phrase minor attracted persons, I think it's fair to call the police right away because you know what that person's intent is. Like, what, what, what else are they saying? They're excusing pedophilia. 
Absolutely. And there's three sides to this. So, of course, firstly, they take over the language. And that is so that they can break down the boundaries. And then thirdly, that's so they can break down family and society. And that's what this has always been about. You know, some of us have been warning about this for years and have been called conspiracy theorists. But there's a reason that there's the mantra, love is love. Because if love means love for anyone, there's no boundaries involved there. And then when we're talking in an age where someone could define their race, someone can define their gender, and someone can define their sex or any other immutable characteristics, why would they not be able to define their age? If you can say, I identify as a woman, what's to stop you saying, I identify as a 12-year-old girl? And if love is love, and you are identifying as a 12-year-old girl, what is to stop you from having a relationship with another 12-year-old girl, biological or non-biological? This is the problem we find ourselves in. This is why they're redefining the language. This is why they're breaking down the boundaries. It's wicked, it's evil, and we must do everything we can to stop it and protect our children. It's amazing. Are you really an Anglican deacon? <laughs> just about. The Church of England did not want me, but I'm still an Anglican just outside of the Church of England. There's a, long, uh, there's a big battle against wokeness going on. Well, we're rooting for you. Thank you. Kevin Robinson, thanks so much. God bless. Good to see you soon. Wow. You don't mix it so that here's a stat day. you probably didn't know. Los Angeles has recorded zero cases of COVID in pets. Thank God. But that's not stopping the city from offering free COVID testing for animals and rodents all over L.A. County. Nearly 200 critters have already been tested for COVID. That would include bats, bring your bat, raccoons, squirrels, coyotes, possums, sea lions, skunks, guinea pigs, and of course, rats. None of them tested positive. What's the point of this exactly? Adam Kroll is the author of the book, Everything Reminds Me of Something, Advice, Answers, But No Apologies. He joins us now. Um, have you brought a sea lion or a possum uh, to be tested, and should you? No, I have not. But what they don't tell you is that all 200 of those animals that were tested were brought in by one crazy, undateable single woman. You know, I was thinking that ex I, I didn't it, it wasn't formulated quite as brilliantly as you just put it. But I was thinking that exact same thing. I want to see the owners who brought their pet a possum yes. in for covid testing. Covid does live in animals, though. So like what what's the end game here? M mandatory vaccination for your dog? I think they're just going to keep going like you bring your dog in, you get get it vaccinated, then give it a gender reassignment surgery, possibly a circumcision. I just think we're just going to keep throwing taxpayer money at this problem. L.A. cannot stop looking for COVID. L.A. is like that last Japanese soldier that's on the island in 1968 and thinks the war is still going on and is still willing to fight. That's what we do. We're like some sort of truffle pig for COVID. We can't stop looking for it. Could they look for meth addiction instead? Well, how about you go to all the homeless encampments and round up all the rats that have the bubonic plague and take care of them? Yes, we have real problems, and all we're doing is looking for COVID because we're obsessed. This feels like late-stage Rome stuff. I mean... Okay, thanks, Adam. Thanks, Tucker. So much to talk about. Let me get back to my conversation earlier today with my friends. Everyone pays for loan forgiveness through inflation. Taxpayers are bearing the brunt of fiscal over-exuberance. That's the 20th century. The, they just print the dollars now. It presents a money-making opportunity. Four financial sector types are in a position to acquire all the new dollars being printed. So I was mentioning that with the right dose of modafinil and with the right dose of reishi mushrooms and with the, the right dose of 
uh, beef organ capsules. I don't find that negative feelings like sit with me quite as much. I mean, I just find with, with modafinil in particular, you know, I just walk around with a mild sense of euphoria. I mean, that's just my experience, not recommending it to anyone else. I've been on it, you know, almost daily for the past eight years. So this isn't something new. How long can a society punish the responsible and reward the irresponsible? How long can such a society persist? Well, I think we're in pretty good shape overall compared to other societies. Which societies do you think are doing so much better than America? Biden is rewarding his political friends at the expense of his political enemies. Well, that's what one would expect from politicians. So not too shocking there. Buddy, you should have worn an N95 mask and a condom. Then that AIDS-ridden chat would not have infected you. It's on you, bro. HIV transmission is a consensual act. Yeah, because for years I talked about how lying is usually a consensual act. When someone's lying to you, all right, and, and you believe it, it's usually because you want to believe it or you're so out of touch with who you are and therefore reality. You're so out of touch with your own emotions that uh, you're you know, very easy to manipulate. My friend says there are issues of principle that are more important than my transitory feelings. Yeah, or well, what can you do about it, right? If you can't do anything about it, then, then I'm not sure it's worth getting upset about all these things you can't do anything about. You're probably wondering what do how brands and Michael Beckley have to say about the emerging conflict with China. A bit prickly and dangerous, and it occurred to me at that point that I had actually written something similar on the dangers of a declining China a couple of years before. And so we started swapping emails and decided that we were thinking about a, a complex problem in, in the same way. And, and so tried to craft a book that would bring together some of the, the things that we both do. And so I'm a historian by, by trade. I think a lot about the history of great power, How rivalry, and the Cold War, and so on and so forth. Mike is a, an IR scholar who spent significant time in China. And so we figured we'd put all that together and, and try to put a little bit of a fresh spin on the let's hyperventilate about China genre of books. In the book, you outlined the historical developments that empowered China and brought us to the current moment where the U.S. now views China as its significant geopolitical competitor. Mike, could you take us through a bit of that history and how we got here? Sure. So, you know, in the initial stages of the Cold War, China for a time became America's number one enemy because you had direct clashes between the two forces in the Korean War, tremendous hostility. But then obviously in the 1970s, things change when the United States exploits the Sino-Soviet split and is able to really recruit China as a quasi-ally. And so that sort of happy marriage of convenience extends all the way until the end of the Cold War. But really, you know, in 1989, you have the unraveling of the Soviet Empire, and then you have Tiananmen Square and the, and the massacre. And so some people thought, well, maybe this could be the moment when you start to see the United States getting tougher with China, because once the Soviet Union is gone, the whole geopolitical rationale for engaging China can come under question. But I think a few things sort of intervened, and we sketch out some of this history in the book. One is just China was much weaker then. You know, it was often joked that if China tried to invade Taiwan in the 1990s, it'd be a million man swim. They just didn't have the capability to really expand militarily. At the same time, China was a huge economic opportunity, you know, with 1.3 billion people long coastline in the heart of rising Asia and a government that is willing to um, to trash the environment and to pave the way for big business to come in. It was just it was just too good of an opportunity. And so American multinationals flooded into China. And so that kind of kicked. I was inspired to do this uh, show today and, and the title, The Power and the Physics, by a conversation between Robert Wright and Justin Logan. So Justin Logan is the foreign affairs guru for the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank. And he makes the point that uh, great power politics and power, they have rules and laws just like physics Denunciation and, and myself gravity. So let's uh, yeah. play a little bit here. That shares a skepticism uh, about American foreign policy broadly, certainly including its militaristic uh, dimension. 
And uh, there, there's been talk. In fact, there's been talk on a podcast I did last week with Derek Davison, uh, who, unlike you, is on the left, but is like you, is also part of this kind of restrainer coalition. Cato uh, is not on the right. So libertarians, some libertarians are on the right. Some libertarians are on the left. Libertarians aren't inherently on the right. Uh, he and I talked about this question of whether the Ukraine war is fracturing the restrainer coalition, and, and if so, why that might be. So um, why don't we start out, uh, why don't I start by asking you, before we get to the, the, the question of the terminology, which you consider suboptimal from a public relations point of view, this, this restrainer concept, and I, got, I, I agree with you, it's not very running. Robert Wright's just a horrible interviewer and a horrible host. He's just taking up way too much time, gabbing, gabbing, gabbing. Just get to the point, ask a short, direct question, Robert. For president, I'd be like, uh, can we have a, more vigorous word or something. But uh, before we get to that, what is your conception of this coalition? How do you, I, I think we more or less agree on kind of the people we're talking about, right? Yeah. What, 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 what do they have in common and, and, and what are they not here? The restrained yeah, coalition. I mean, this is my own conception of it. So different people, members of the coalition or otherwise will disagree, I guess. Um, I think it's impossible to talk about a restraint coalition or restraint as a political force in America in 2022 without rooting it kind of in the Middle East policies of the Bush administration and later the Obama administration, right? There was a sense that something had gone really radically wrong um, and everyone in Washington at the time seemed to think that nothing had gone radically wrong. Paul Jago, the, the head of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, famously referred to the Cato Defense and Foreign Policy, not famously, to me famously, referred to the Cato. Local, locally famously. Yeah, within a 10 square foot circle around where I'm sitting right now, became famous. Um, so Cato opposed the Iraq war in 2002, 2003. And someone asked you go, uh, it was actually Danny Costell in the American Prospect in 2004. Why didn't you guys run articles from Cato in the Wall Street Journal saying, you know, maybe the Iraq war was a bad idea? And she goes sort of sniffed and said, I, I don't think libertarianism has anything to say about foreign policy. Is, is, is it, you know, a, a real political philosophy or four or five people in a phone booth? I thought it was like a really great. What is the phrase. answer to that question, by the way, Justin? Well, it, is it, it kind of people felt like four or five people in a phone booth at the time? That's really an accurate characterization of how it felt. But I think the fact that it, is, it doesn't feel that way anymore, and I think you'd be kooky to characterize it in that way, suggests that there is kind of a, a burgeoning restraint uh, uh, constituency. So I think it's really. Right. When over-exuberance doesn't work out too well, it would make sense that the pendulum would swing more towards restraint. So lively chat going on at Odyssey. Luciano says, Odyssey starting to get spicy. Meritocracy is racist. Standards are racist. Choose diversity or choose standards. Time to choose. You can't have both. He says, Tenet was the best film I have ever seen, even though the main actor was incredibly awful. I don't like sci-fi, so I, I started watching Tenet, gave up. Dugan's daughter was murdered. Did I hear about it? Yes. So I suspect it wasn't Ukrainians who murdered her. I think it's probably some kind of intra-Russia, probably intra-Russia right-wing feud. So that's what I think is uh, going on there. And uh, let's get a little more. Rooted in a sense that something went dramatically wrong in U.S. policy in the Middle East. And I think most members of this constituency think that that's not an isolated phenomenon. Right. America has had these quirky ideological outbursts periodically every 20 or 30 years or so. Um, even starting the Korean War, certainly the Vietnam War would be a part of this. And I think, you know, people in restraint say, you know, how do we keep blundering into these things? But I think as a political phenomenon, as a contemporary phenomenon, it's entirely rooted in reaction against, if you want to use, you know, sort of uh, anti-right-wing terminology. Um, you know, what went wrong in the aughts and early teens in the Middle East? So it did start out. Okay. So you're probably wondering what the hell is going on in the New York Times. And uh, food insecurity, guys. Food insecurity is rising. So please, please uh, share a thought for the food insecure. The cost of living is outpacing her pay. So Tamla Clover has begun relying on a food 
pantry in Portland, Oregon. So half of Americans are obese, but uh, we've got food insecurity going on, right? I mean, they want to call it hunger, hunger in America, all these campaigns about hunger in America, but uh, it's really hard to make the case we've got hunger in America. So instead they call it food insecurity, meaning that you don't have all your bills you know, lined up and... Uh, assuredly paid for so economic aid once plentiful falls off at a painful moment food insecurity is rising uh maybe this is a really good time to start uh start losing some weight new york times when it comes to eating away at a democracy trump is a winner this is Tom Edsel. I really like his weekly center-left column in the New York Times. So he notes that there's a decline in popular support for democracy and is greater in the United States than elsewhere, especially among the young. Why would there be a decline in support for democracy in the United States or elsewhere? Because democracy is a tool. If democracy is working, all right, if democracy is meeting your needs, if democracy seems like the most effective form of government, then people will support it. But if in different situations, other forms of government seem more compelling, more aligned to your interests, then you're not going to be so high on democracy. And I noticed with this plethora of mainstream articles about how Donald Trump is a threat to democracy, notice they never define democracy. They always say democracy to mean established bureaucratic protocols of which the left is dominant. But if they really want to make a good point, a strong point about Trump threatening democracy, you'd think they'd bother to define democracy. So one easy definition of democracy is majority rule. Another definition is government of the people, by the people, for the people from Abraham Lincoln. But they never even bother to define democracy. So in the U.S., you see a large across-the-board decline in support for democracy between 2011 and 2017. Well, People are reacting to the world around them and to the society around them, and they are seeing that it is not going in a good direction. So generally speaking, the liberal democratic order has been in retreat around the world over the past 15 years. So many of these experts in the New York Times says that the United States is distinctive in the degree to which its democracy has become weaker, but they don't define how it's become weaker. Are people unable to, to vote for a president, vote for a representative, vote for, for a senator? So why is democracy weakening in the United States? We've got this left-wing academic says that both the center-right and the center-left politicians have promised huge gains from globalization and technology for everybody, and aspirations rose. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable point. Many groups were disappointed and frustrated with slow or no economic progress. Good point. They also felt completely unheard and ignored by technocratic-sounding politicians using globalist language and proclaiming values that did not jibe with their preoccupations. That is a great point. All of these have been living much more strongly in the United States, where workers without a college degree have seen their real earnings fall significantly and their communities depressed. Now, why have real earnings for people without a college degree fallen in the United States? Because we have so much unskilled immigration, right? The government essentially sets wage rates by deciding how much immigration we have. Australia restricts its immigration, so Australia is the best place in the world to be an average bloke. But we 
massively import millions of people that drives down wages for the unskilled. So many Americans have come to believe that both of the political parties are pushing different values from theirs and not listening to their concerns. I think that's a really good point. And so with this is another good point. The widespread acceptance among Republican voters of Trump's claim the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Okay, don't take it literally. Take it seriously, right? This claim is a signal, right? You are signaling to the rest of the population and especially to the media that you are unhappy and that you are distinct from the well-educated elites benefiting from the current system. So the more outrageous this signal sounds, the election was stolen, the more effective it may be to some people who are trying to send the signal. So we can't just listen to things on a literal level. We have to understand what's going on behind the words. So if we demonize Trump supporters, that's just going to make things worse for the Democrats. right? If, if Democrats say, oh, Trump supporters are delusional, Right, That's just going to fuel the fury. Trump supporters are angry. They feel outside of the mainstream. They feel like every major institution is aligned against them. And a more effective response may be broadening the mainstream coalition. So another analysis from political scientists is that the current state of American politics has calcified. Right, It's made politics rigid. I think that's true. It's born of four factors. Increasing distance between the parties. We're farther apart than ever ideologically. True. Increasing homogeneity across issue positions within each party. We are more like our fellow partisans than ever. True. Three, the displacement of the new deal dimension of conflict with a new dimension of conflict based on identity issues. True. And partisan parity within the electorate. So there's near balance between people who call themselves Democrats and Republicans. So these four things make politics feel stuck and explosive. Great points. So the stakes of election outcomes are very high because the other side is farther away than ever. So this should be further away. Farther is a distance word. Further is, is distance without meaning literal physical distance. So farther should refer to physical distance further. I believe that's right. Farther versus further. All right. Use farther only when you're referring to distance. Use further only to mean more. Right? So I'm right here. He misused the word farther. Right? He says the other side is farther away than ever. Well, no, he didn't misuse it because he's referring to distance, figurative distance. So use further for more. I am wrong and he is right. So this is the ultimate challenge to democracy, preventing parties from changing the rules to erode democratic principles. Uh, how much do people really care about democratic principles unless it makes a concrete difference to their life? So... We have a healthy body politic in that the two parties offer unique and very different visions of the world to voters, and voters now see and understand the differences. So more voters see important differences between the two major American political parties today than they have at any point since the 1950s. People know what kind of world they want to live in, and so they can match that to the party offerings to figure out where they belong and who to vote for. So strong dislike of members of the opposition party of outgroups is being growing rapidly among adolescents. 
So this was a constituency previously more neutral in its political views. So adolescents who identify as Republican or Democrat have become just as polarized as adults. And it's not because they've become more positive in their evaluation of their own party, but primarily because of their distrust of the opposing party has increased dramatically. So higher levels of in-group favoritism and out-group distrust are in place well before adulthood. This is very different from the developmental pattern that held in the 1970s and 80s, when early childhood was characterized by a blanket positivity toward political leaders and partisanship gradually intruded into the political attitudes of adolescents before peaking in adulthood. And then there's this 2021 paper from some political scientists, the majoritarian threat to liberal democracy. Wait, isn't isn't majoritarian, isn't that democracy? But these political scientists argue that many voters are majoritarian in that they view popularly elected leaders' actions as inherently democratic, even when those actions undermine liberal democracy. So liberalism and democracy are at odds. Right? If you believe in fundamental rights, then that comes from a liberal perspective. In a pure democracy, people could vote to take away all of your rights. Right? If you want to believe that we have these certain inalienable rights, then you are putting a limit on democracy. So this term liberal democracy glides over the fact that liberalism and democracy are fundamentally at odds. You want to believe in innate human rights like freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom of travel, right? That comes from liberalism. That doesn't come from democracy. With democracy, people could vote to get rid of all those rights. So the more liberalism you have, the more protected rights you have, the less democracy. I'm not coming down on one side or the other. I'm just pointing out a basic fact of life. I'm talking about the power and the physics today. The more rights you have, the less democracy. The more democracy you have, the fewer rights you have. So majoritarians want to give wide latitude to elected officials. And this is a, an important threat to liberal democracy. No, it's a threat to liberalism. It is a living embodiment of democracy. Right, Jack Goldstone is a professor of public policy at George Mason University. And he had an essay last month, Trump was a symptom, not the disease, and it's become a global pandemic. So he says it is the action of liberal elites, well-intended but grievously misguided, that have spawned the populist wave. So ruling elites promoting globalization and diversity have deprived many groups in their own societies of opportunity, hope, and security. So this is a good point, I think. Trump was a symptom, not the disease. Right? And he begins saying, what ails democracy? Why do we have the rise of all these nationalist, xenophobic, and authoritarian leaders? Like, why has the virus of nationalist authoritarianism spread? Well, I expect it has spread because it is meeting people's needs more effectively than democracy. So what has made these nationalists attractive? The fault is not in our stars, in in. It is in ourselves. It is the liberal elites who have spawned the populist wave. So ruling elites promoting globalization and diversity have deprived many groups in their own societies of opportunity, hope, and security. So here are some of the worst mistakes and miscalculations from liberal elites that have spurred the global wave of populism. We've got wars in the Middle East. 
right? Unnecessary wars, overzealous, poorly thought out military aggression in Afghanistan and Iraq. That's produced massive blowback of global Islamist terrorism against the West. We've got the nature of the internet, which is producing extraordinary concentrations of wealth and power and puts social discourse at the mercy of algorithms. We have underestimated what would happen if we integrated China into the global system. We have developed a meritocratic trap that is excluding half of society and leading to a decline in social mobility. And we have singled out minorities for aid. So the global elites say historically disadvantaged minorities deserve government assistance to overcome hardship. Right? But the result has been a wave of deaths of despair and disabilities among older white males due to alcoholism, drug overdoses. So you give all the aid, you focus your aid on minorities and make sense that the majority or sections of the majority may not like that. Then we've had the denigrating of the culturally different, meaning those in conservative, rural, business and religious groups. So liberal elites have denigrated these groups as being culturally extreme, systematically racist, irrational, ignorant. And instead, elites should have sought ways to give dignity and support to everyone in society. Is it any wonder that people around the world have developed a fierce hatred of those elites and have embraced strong man leaders who claim to offer protection and renewed national strength based on the exclusion of outsiders and enemies, including elites? As mainly a reaction to policy in the Middle East, uh, you know, anti-terrorism policy, global war on, on terrorism. And if that's the case, you know, if it started as this uh, insistence on ending the forever wars, associated with with that war, many of which, by the way, are still going on in various countries, in, you know, whether as proxy wars or with limited involvement of U.S. special forces or with drone strikes or whatever. But leaving that aside, uh, the um, if it started out as that, it maybe it's not so surprising that when something like Ukraine comes along, that's very different. Um, you might not have the same degree of cohesion that, that you had. Uh, is, is it your sense that that's really the case, that it's it's kind of less clear what so-called restrainers will will naturally say about Ukraine than than about various interventions associated with the war on terror? Well, I mean, I think you rightly in the conversation that you had with Davison um, got into this a little bit. I mean, I think there's, if you draw the world into sort of three regions that the United States pokes around at periodically, Europe, the Middle East, and East Asia, um, I think there's the greatest consensus among the restraints coalition, if we're going to call it that, about the Middle East, right? And so I wrote this paper for Defense Priorities a couple years ago saying, there's just not that much militarily that we need from the Middle East at all. We would do better off to just leave it alone entirely and not come up with new allies and not come up with new bases and not come up with new, just walk away from it. It's a, you know, weak, poor region of the world. We should just leave it alone militarily. What, what about the common uh, objection that it has oil? Sure. So the paper goes into great detail about how energy economists think about oil markets in a fundamentally different way than security strategists, especially in Washington do. Um, energy markets don't work the way that people think they work. Um, so I, it will bore the hell out of your readers if I get into a big discourse about what's wrong with the Washington think tank conception of how oil markets work. Um, but I would point people to uh, this paper to talk about, you know, it's not. Okay, let's uh, check out Tucker Carlson chaplain. here. He started Austin's fire chaplaincy program and then served as the city's lead chaplain, a virtuous thing to do. Recently on his personal blog, Fox wrote about his Christian beliefs. In one post, he wrote that men should not be allowed to compete against women in women's sports because they're not women. Well, the city of Austin would not allow this. They tried to get Fox to recant his views. When he didn't, as he shouldn't because they're deeply held and real, they fired him, which is illegal. Andrew Fox joins us tonight, along with his attorney at Alliance Defending Freedom, Ryan Banger. 
Andrew and Ryan, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Andrew Fox, first, first to you, did we misstate the facts of the case? Did you do anything else that would have justified your firing other than have an opinion? No, uh, you absolutely uh, stated the facts that I write and I have been writing for many years, a, a personal and private uh, blog that is nothing to do with the Austin Fire Department. And yes, you correctly stated that I argued that someone born a man transitioning to be a woman competing against women um, uh, in athletics is an attack. It is an affront on women and uh, ruins everything that they've been working for. And so I argued that intelligently and also biblically, being um, a Christian man myself. And then I was asked to recant on those views and then write a letter of apology for those views. Of course, I didn't do that. You didn't lick the boots of the trans lobby. Hmm. Um, okay. Let me ask your attorney, is this legal? I was under the impression that government agencies couldn't fire people for their religious beliefs. Well, Tucker, your impression is exactly right. Social agendas should never trump America's fundamental civil rights under the U.S. Constitution. And Americans should never be forced to apologize and recant for stating those beliefs in public. And that's exactly what the city of Austin demanded of Dr. Fox. And that clearly violates the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and the Texas Constitution as we set forth in our complaint. Yeah, that was my impression. Uh, Dr. Fox, were, were the people who fired you aware that your view is the majority view in the United States? Most people agree with you. And did any politicians come to your aid? No politicians came to my aid. And as regards uh, the views that I wrote about in my blog, yes, they're broadly held and widely believe, um, beliefs in the United States. And so when I first, it, when it was first brought to my attention, I was clearly told uh, in a meeting with the chief and his assistant that they were not there to censure me and uh, they, they did not want me to stop writing my blog. But in the end, it ended up in my termination, which was quite shocking and angered me after serving the department for eight years, serving those who selflessly serve their community at the same time. So I was shocked that it all came to that point. Okay. So. So, so, so. What did I want to say? Not the case that these, um, the taps can be turned off easily. I guess I would leave it at that. But there's a great amount of consensus about doing less slash nothing in the Middle East. And I think Europe and particularly East Asia, which it sounds like we'll get into a bit later, leave a lot more to be debated. And I think that as a sort of realist member of this constituency, it's very easy for me to hold in my mind that things that I find revolting um, are recurring features of international politics and that those things which I find revolting don't impact U.S. national security in a meaningful way. And so you can still have a debate. Part of the virtue of being the United States is you can still have a debate about whether or what we should do pursuing to something we find revolting but is not fundamentally about us. We can yeah. do lots of things. We have that luxury. Um, but I do think that there's not as much meat on the bones of what to do in Europe or particularly what to do in East Asia as there is in the Middle East. Yeah. You, you use the, the, the term realist there. Maybe we should get into that. Oh, yeah. I wanted to talk about Alex Berenson. So more than 60 people have sued to get back their social media accounts. Alex Berenson, to, to the best of my knowledge, is the first person who succeeded. So I, I find that fascinating. I'm not a fan of Alex Berenson. I, I side with the Atlantic essay a few months back calling him the, the pandemic's wrongest man. But uh, interesting article out today. A prominent vaccine skeptic returns to Twitter a year after he was banned. Alex Berenson sued his way back and more lawsuits coming. 
So one year ago this month, Twitter permanently suspended Alex Berenson, a 340,000 follower account for repeated violations of our COVID-19 misinformation rules. So Alex Berenson is a former New York Times reporter and a vaccine skeptic. He responded with a lawsuit demanding reinstatement. And few thought he had any chance of coming out on top. So one lawyer went through the complaint page by page on Twitter and concluded that Alex Berenson had hired a band of incompetent knockoff Muppet lawyers to present a doomed case. I mean, that's what the expert opinion is on Donald Trump and his attorneys right now. So somehow the, uh, the, the Muppet lawyers won. Earlier this summer, Twitter put Alex Berenson's account back online, noting that the parties have come to a mutually acceptable resolution. Has this happened with anyone else who sued to get back their social media account? Uh, Jared Taylor sued Twitter. He didn't win. Berenson wasted little time calling out mainstream media for failing to cover the path-breaking settlement that led to his return. So, Alex Berenson is back. And this matters that just a little because you, you identified yourself as one of the realist members of the restraint coalition. But I think there are people who view the coalition from the outside and think of it as kind of broadly realist. And I do think there is part of, of realism that may be shared by people in the coalition. But why don't you tell me what you have in mind when you think of yourself as a realist in a sense? that OK, I had to go back to Apple News. I subscribe to Apple News Plus. I'm thinking I need to give up my Netflix subscription. I got too many Netflix subscriptions. I pay something like fifteen dollars a month for Netflix. I, I think I'm I'm watching like two hours a month of, of Netflix, but I just can't bring myself to cancel it. I'm paying ten dollars a month for Apple News Plus so that I can read you know two hundred different publications for free after that ten dollars, including the Atlantic. So is the Overview. For years, people who've been booted off Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and other platforms have sued to get back on, and their lawsuits just get dismissed. So an analysis of 62 such decisions for an August 2021 paper found that the internet companies had won all of these lawsuits. And so this uh, Professor Eric Goldman, law professor at the prestigious Santa Clara University School of Law, read Alex Berenson's lawsuit his first impression was it was doomed to fail, just like the dozens of others that had also been tried. But Berenson's victory was not based on his argument his ban was a violation of the First Amendment. The judge rejected this claim. His success was hinged on promises made to him by a high-level Twitter employee. The points you're raising should not be an issue at all. The company's then vice president of global communications assured Alex Berenson at one point. So the lawsuit says the same executive later told Berenson that his name had never come up in the discussions about Twitter's COVID-19 misinformation policies. So the law professor says the court's decision to allow a claim based on that correspondence prompted Twitter to settle. So internet service executives have always been instructed by lawyers not to talk with people about their individual accounts and not to make any promises about what might happen for reasons that should now be obvious. Notice you can never reach anyone at Google if you lose your account. You can never reach anyone at YouTube or, or Twitter or Facebook if you lose your account. Because if you have any direct interaction with an employee, if the employee is not very careful, they are very likely to give you solid legal grounds that will end up reinstating your account. Now, last week, Alex Berenson published a Substack post that included screenshots of 
conversation on Twitter's internal Slack messaging system from April 2021, which show employees discussing a recent White House meeting at which members of the Biden administration posed tough questions about why Alex Berenson hadn't been kicked off the platform. And another message says that Andy Slavitt, who was a senior advisor to Joe Biden at the time on the administration's COVID-19 response, specifically mentioned data that had showed Alex Berenson was the epicenter of disinformation. So now Alex Berenson is declaring he will sue the Biden administration for infringing upon his free speech by compelling Twitter to take action against his account. Now, the legal experts say his case is unlikely to succeed. Now, like other social media platforms, Twitter has tried to implement new policies at the start of the pandemic to crack down on misinformation. Now, here's the final tweet from Alex Berenson before he was kicked off Twitter last year. Alex Berenson wrote, It doesn't about COVID vaccines. It doesn't stop infection or transmission. Don't think of it as a vaccine. Think of it, at best, as a therapeutic with a limited window of efficacy and terrible side effect profile that must be dosed in advance of illness, and we want to mandate it? Insanity. Right, so the first two statements in the tweet are factually accurate. The third wouldn't seem to qualify as a claim of fact. The fourth, with its reference to terrible side effect profile, is tendentious, perhaps misleading, but the overall point of the tweet is to express disdain for vaccine mandates. So how did this tweet lead to Berenson's removal from the site? So a company spokesman says, upon further review, Twitter acknowledges Mr. Berenson's tweet should not have led to his suspension at that time. So we have a sociologist here at the City University of London who wants to take issue with the whole concept of harm as it's used in health misinformation policies on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. She notes that scientific consensus and official recommendations have kept changing over the course of the pandemic. There's the early advice to not wear face masks. Then there was a retraction of prominent papers in The Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine about the safety of various medications used by COVID-19 patients. So the issue with basing content moderation policies on the concept of harm is that scientific understanding of harm is uncertain and constantly evolving. Harm is not a neutral concept. What is considered harmful is contingent depending upon partisan issues and politics. So these COVID misinformation policies on social media serve as a fodder for a culture war over platforms' efforts to mitigate harmful speech. And uh, there are all sorts of other lawsuits pending. Science is not about the truth revealed by technocrats. It's about discussion, says one lawyer. So the next round of lawsuits may go nowhere, but they can still play a role in a growing ecosystem of aggrieved influencers for whom claims of being censored by platforms are a form of clout. And the issue is only getting hotter. New efforts to regulate social media at the state level may enable far more legal action with higher odds of success. So if laws like those that have been passed in Florida and Texas are to stand up in court, everything will change. We will see a massive tsunami of litigation that dwarfs what we have seen so far. Back to Robert Wright talking to Justin Logan. That maybe distinguishes you from some other people in the coalition, if that makes sense. Or, yeah. Or if it yeah, doesn't, it just sense. say anything with the word realism and we'll move on. We, we went from the, 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 the really uh, uh, lively topic of how energy markets work to <laughs> IR 101 from the University of Chicago. So um, 
it's clearly the case that there are people in the restraint coalition who are not realists, who are vehemently anti-realists. What, what, what makes them anti-realist or not realist? So my colleague, John Mueller, late of Ohio State University, I think he's still emeritus there, and of Cato, right, thinks that the realist focus on the recurrence of war in international politics is misplaced. John thinks that war has basically been burned out of the international system. Humanity has learned its lesson. And you say, well, but Ukraine, John. So he's written a piece of foreign affairs saying Ukraine only proves the point, right? Um, it's almost a Norman Angel type argument that, you know, people say, well, Angel said that uh, uh, war was, was impossible was irrational in Europe. No, he just said it would be counterproductive. And John says the same thing, right? And so if people want to blunder periodically and remind themselves that war is counterproductive, that, that, that's tragic and unfortunate. But anyway, so John is you know, very much anti-realist. So to my way of thinking, realists think that a number of fundamental so-called structural realities about international politics can explain a lot of international political outcomes. One is the so-called condition of international anarchy, right? So in the United States, if you do something really bad, the government will come find you, right? And it's very difficult to take on the government frontally, right? There's a hierarchy. There's political authority that can impose its will. Whereas in the international system, we have the United Nations, we have very powerful states like the United States, but in a fundamental sense, it is anarchic, not to say that there's chaos everywhere all the time. And, and just there, to drill down on the John Mueller point, you, you're saying realists view this anarchy and hence recurrence of war as more or less a perpetual feature of reality, and John thinks it can be wound down and is being wound down. John thinks that people have learned, and you know, I don't want to, maybe I'm mischaracterizing his views here, but my understanding of John's views is that people have learned, particularly after World War II, right. um, that war doesn't pay. That war is counterproductive, or, or I think his recent book called it the stupidity of war. Right. Um, and so there's learning that has gone on at the individual level and at the level of statesmen even, uh-huh. um, that people realize it would be really stupid for the United States and Russia to have a war, or really stupid for the United States and China to have a war. Mm-hmm. And so all this realist caterwauling about you know, the risk of war is nonsense. Really. And am I, am I right, though, that you think that, that a realist believes that war is just basically never going to go away? never is fairly extreme, but the, the structure of international politics makes it a recurring feature of international politics. Now, to, to sort of uh, uh, dump on my own side here. So I've given you some hate porn, right? You come here for hate porn. I've given you some hate porn, but now it's time to deconstruct hate porn, right? I've got, uh, I've got good news, all right, for all right-thinking people. You're going to rejoice. Google has found that inoculating people against misinformation helps blunt its power. Right, teaching people how to spot misinformation makes people more skeptical of misinformation. Right? It's called pre-bunking. Right? Psychologically inoculating internet users against lies and conspiracy theories by preemptively showing them videos about the tactics behind misinformation makes people more skeptical of falsehoods afterwards, according to an academic paper published in the journal Science Advances. All right, so Let's let's get deprogrammed. Let's get debunked here, right? Let let's go on a journey together. You might think about skipping this ad. Don't. What happens next will make you tear up. Wait, you're still here? I mean, great. Looks like the trick worked. You see, when watching videos or browsing online, you are likely to encounter content that is loaded with emotional language and with good reason. Playing into emotions, especially negative ones, such as... I mean, this is what drives Tucker Carlson's show. That's what makes it so compelling. And with pretty much any compelling live streamer is uh, the use of emotional language. Fear, anger, or contempt is a trick to get you to pay attention to something when you otherwise wouldn't. It's likely... So I started watching these videos with an eye towards debunking the debunkers and the pre-bunkers. But these videos are pretty good. That's a big reason why you're still watching this ad is because you were lured in by our use of emotional language in the very first sentence. 
Research has shown that expressing emotion is key for the spread of moral and especially political ideas in social networks. So let's say when you're writing a headline and you're trying your hardest to manipulate your readers to click, one thing you can do is pepper your headlines with a bunch of emotionally charged words. Call it a horrific accident instead of a serious one, a disgusting ruling instead of a disagreeable one, or a heartbreaking twist of faith instead of an unfortunate coincidence. That way you're likely to reach more people and influence the reactions. So let's see how this plays out in real life. Let's take the following headline from the movie Anchorman. No emotional manipulation at play here, just to the point, no nonsense coverage of such an important event in history. This headline, on the other hand, see what they did there? The writer used an emotionally charged word like revolting to describe a whole group of people. Are mutes people? Oh, well, you get the point. They're fear-mongering. So whenever you feel outraged or angry, remember, someone may be pulling your strings. Don't be manipulated. Truth Labs, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's a pretty good video. Groundbreaking new research shows that anybody who closes a video ad within the first five seconds is most likely to watch online advertising all the way through. Go on, think about that totally coherent statement for just a couple of seconds. Incoherence. Now, the quality being illogical or inconsistent, if your goal is to defend a position at all costs, it doesn't really matter whether your reasons for doing so form the coherent whole because most people won't notice anyway. It's much easier to use the most convenient argument at hand, even if this argument and a different argument you made earlier cannot both be true at the same time. It's useful to be on the lookout for such incoherent arguments. Being incoherent means being wrong. The earth cannot be flat and round. If someone is using both arguments at different times, they are the ones who are confused, not you. Incoherence can be difficult to spot in real time, as people often... Okay, I know you want to hate these videos, right? You hold on, hate, you know, the whole notion of misinformation and elites telling us what's right and wrong. But these videos are excellent. I mean, this, this is a course in, in logical thinking. And don't make incoherent arguments in the same sentence. But let's see what the truth omatic has to say. Pull the lever, Crunk! Well, that looks exactly like my old space. Yeah, but this one comes with your own company suck-up. Morning, Mr. Griffin. Nice day. Well, it's a little cloudy. It's absolutely cloudy. One of the worst days I've seen in years. So, good news about the Yankees. I hate the Yankees. Pack of cheaters. That's what they are. I love your tie. I hate this tie. It's awful. It's gaudy. It's gotta go. So whenever you see contradictions like this, the argument is most likely incoherent. Truth Labs. Keep coherent and carry on. Either right. you stop watching the lamestream media, or you want all puppies to die! Make sense, right? No? Good, because it shouldn't. It's a common manipulation technique called a false dichotomy, or a false dilemma. It's designed to make you think you only got two choices to choose from, when in reality, there are more. As with our little dilemma at the beginning, there's no reason why you can't watch mainstream media and want all puppies to live. The two don't rule each other out. And by presenting you with an option that is clearly undesirable and the option the manipulator wants you to pick, your choices are narrowed down for you. A famous example of a false... Man, I hope Ricardo's gonna get to benefit from these videos. ...dilemma is this one from Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. My allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy! If you're not with me, 
then you're my enemy. Anakin's claim that Obi-Wan is either with him or is his enemy is a clear case of false dichotomy. Obi-Wan is trying to prevent Anakin from joining the dark side, which naturally involves being critical of Anakin's choices. But just because Obi-Wan disagrees with Anakin doesn't automatically make them enemies. Obi-Wan's reply is actually perfect. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. Good old Obi! Be on the lookout for instances of false dichotomies in real life. They're more common than you think. Truth Labs. When things are too black and white, dare to be gray. Another excellent video, man. I mean, this this university's bringing it. Truth Labs. That's, hey guys, that's just what we need. Hey guys, welcome to this video on logical fallacies. When creating a logical argument, there are many different aspects that have to come together to ensure that your argument is sound and does not contain any flaws. One of these aspects is avoiding what we call logical fallacies. A logical fallacy is an error of reasoning that will weaken your argument and, in most cases, undermine it completely. Today so for me, when I hear overstatement, as soon as I hear overstatement, I, I start, I, I tend to dismiss the, the speaker. Hey, we're going to look at the 10 most common logical fallacies. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Let's get back to... Managing the tragedy of great. I think a lot politics. of realists ran, went awry during the so-called unipolar moment, right? A lot of realists were saying, oh, there's soft balancing against the United States. And many of them even denied that unipolarity was a thing. They said that, you know, 1993 or 1994, we were in a multipolar world. Um, and scholars like William Woolforth and the late Nuno Montero said, this is balami. It's, you know, two minus one is one, right? If we were in a bipolar system during the Cold War and the Soviet Union collapsed, two minus one is one. We're in a unipolar world. Um, and so I think a lot of realists made errant predictions and errant uh, diagnoses of international politics in the 90s and early aughts based on their misapplication of their own theory, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the sort of archetypal realist mooseheads, Kenneth Waltz, you know, would later say, unipolarity was outside the scope conditions of my theory. I didn't, I didn't say anything. I didn't conceive mm -hmm. of unipolarity. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't conceived of it, it can't be in your theory. Well, and by the way, this is a tangent, but Hans Morgenthau, a, a famous founding realist, said in his book, Politics Among Nations, uh, it, it would be consistent with realism if uh, technology so changed that it wound up I, 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 mean, I hope I have this right. That you wound up uh, with a world government and it kind of making sense for there to be a world government. A realist can adapt to that. But, 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 but all of that aside, let me um, ask you a question about kind of applied realism. Because realism, first of all, is this very complicated and, and internally diverse thing. But it has this descriptive side where it describes the way it thinks international politics work. Um, and then it has a, a prescriptive side. And, and I think when, when some people think of the restraint coalition broadly as being realist, they're thinking of, of one, one thing having to do with the prescriptive side, which is the idea that, look, the United States can't really afford to concern itself much with the internal affairs of nations. It is, it is, it's bad when human rights... And coming in the chat, no, Kevin Michael Grace in two weeks. Apparently got a lot of strikes on YouTube. He's trying to set up on some other platform. He's, you know, he's welcome to come on here for, for a night or two. We can uh, renew things. And uh, I'm sure he'll eventually find his way to platforms such as Odyssey. Rights are violated. It's bad when they're suffering. But fundamentally, we have a world consisting of sovereign states. That's the way it works. And I think a lot of people in coalition would say we, we tend to get into big trouble when we meddle much in the internal affairs of nations, even to the extent of uh, in humanitarian terms, making things worse. So classic case, the Libya intervention, also sanctions, which do almost nothing but cause suffering because they almost never get you what you wanted to get and, and so on. So. Uh, I, I think 
I, I think that's a isn't that kind of an aspect of realism and kind of characteristic of the restraint coalition broadly? Yeah, I think to varying degrees, right? Um, the unintended consequences, right? There's a, there is, I think realism is kind of a conservative ideology. Yeah, I think yeah it's that, thought um, that way. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, there was a funny debate at Brookings years ago, Barry Posen, a sort of MIT realist. Who I think is, is, he resp- is Posen responsible for the word restraint, restrainer? Uh, I think he wrote a no, book where it figured prominently. Is that not Definitely true? don't blame him for. Man, Robert Wright just won't shut up. I mean, I want to hear Justin Logan. This is the first time I've heard Justin Logan from, from Cato. And every time Justin Logan's about to enunciate a point, you know, Robert Wright interrupts him. A restrainer. Um, restraint. He, so he wrote a book in 20, I guess it was 14, uh, entitled Restraint, where mm-hmm. he endorsed that word as the strategic. But it actually goes back to an article in the 1990s by students of his, Eugene Gold's Daryl Press, and a colleague of his, Harvey Sapolsky, uh, entitled Come Home America. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a sort of, you know, and, and this was a popular idea among people like Jean Kirkpatrick in the 1990s, right? Was it? People forget that they're, yes, absolutely. She called on the United For States. For younger to become, viewers, she was what? She was ambassador in the UN, but she, but she was thought of as a neocon, right? She emerged very, during the first Bush administration or during the Reagan administration? Reagan administration. Yeah. And- right. So Jean Kirkpatrick was a major neocon in the 1980s, but when circumstances change, her ideologies change, all right? When our situation changes, we change. In certain situations, I'm outgoing. In other situations, I'm shy. In certain situations, I'm honest. In other situations, I'm dishonest. So in the 1980s, 1970s, Jean Kirkpatrick was all for American intervention overseas. In the 1990s, she switched to a more isolationist perspective. Sort of a, yeah, almost a little more boltony than neoconservative, a sort of aggressive, assertive, nationalistic person. She called on the United States to become, I think the way she put it was, a normal country in normal times. Wait, right? when did she say this? So she changed? Look, uh, I mean, we, don't have, book, we don't have to track it down. But you're, it, there, there are two different Gene Kirkpatricks. I mean, no, they, I think that, look, when the structure of the international system changes, it's it, rational it, for it, what it, you want yeah. to do in the international Right. When the structure of the international situation changes, it's rational for you to change your ideology. When the structure of the situation you work in, you live in, you sleep in, you pray in, you make love in, you earn money in, you exercise in, when the structure around us changes, it's rational for us to change and adapt to it. Right. So situation will frequently have much more of an effect on us than whatever we think our our innate personality qualities. Maybe you think of yourself as outgoing, but you put yourself in certain situations, you'll be quiet and retiring. You might think of yourself in honest, put yourself in a different situation, you'll become dishonest. So if you want to see a a Disney ESPN movie about uh, these these brothers from Africa via Greece, Yiannopoulos, uh, one was MVP a couple of years ago. Uh, The family escaped from Africa, went through Turkey, lived in Greece as illegal immigrants for years. Uh, it's called Rise. So pretty good movie. And you get to, you know, if you can stand to have some empathy for, you know, illegal aliens from Africa moving into Greece and eventually the United States. And three of the players be- have become uh, NBA, three of the boys, three of the sons, three of the brothers have become NBA players. International system so to change. After the Cold War, she became something more like a restraint advocate? Well, she wrote an essay that, that yeah, advocated okay. for this, right? God bless that woman. I'm changing, my views of her are changing even as we speak. So, anyway, so the title of the essay is A Normal Country in a Normal Time. Okay. Um, she's also responsible, I think, for famously emphasizing the distinction between authoritarians and totalitarians by way of explaining why during the Cold War we could be serving the cause of right. freedom by allying with all these creepy authoritarians who murder tons of people. She's, right. she's like, well, but they're not totalitarians. That's who we're really against. Right. right. I don't mean to endorse her views in toto. I'm just saying yeah, there's no, more No, no, no. And I don't mean to get us off them. onto an ever, never-ending uh, series of tangents. So, so why don't I shut up and why don't you wrap up anything you want to say about realism and then we'll yeah. say something else. So anarchy in international politics, no ordering world state yet. 
Um, Security-seeking states, right? So states tend to look at other states and find them as threatening, not necessarily always in a military way, but, you know, as a libertarian like me thinks, right? States tend to aggrandize themselves, I would say both domestically and internationally, but generally internationally. Um, You know, so they look for allies, they arm themselves to defend themselves, and they like their little fiefdoms to be secure. Mm -hmm. And because of this, the combination of anarchy and either security-seeking or, as my old professor John Mearsheimer would say, power-maximizing. You studied um, under Mearsheimer at Chicago? I I did. Uh Uh-huh. Um, you wind up with the recurrence of war. And so some people say that this is, you know, a function of defensive things, the security dilemma, a country arming itself looks scary to me, whether or not it has any malign intentions toward me, or as John would say, you want to become a regional hegemon and you're willing to do awful things to get it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, maybe, uh, by way of getting into this question of whether, so, so wait, just quickly, sounds like you object more to restrainer than restraint a little yeah, bit, even though maybe I, neither look, would be your choice. I think that in the year of our Lord, 2022, restraint is not a really American concept. Right. The reality is we're a big, throbbing country of 330 million people. We have an enormous GDP. We toy with these sort of millennial messianic views of the meaning of our country for the world. So restraint, we're going to tie ourselves down. That's what it's just not something that's a live uh, uh, political thing. There was a term in the 1990s called offshore balancing. But I think it's only two words, not one. Um, But it says something about both geography and action. That's a little. Okay, having a look at the chat on Odyssey. Alex Jones just can't stop talking about COVID-19 vaccine deaths or injuries. Is he lying or is he just completely mental? I think he's playing to his base. When you play to your base, play to your friends, you don't think in terms of, of lying. You're telling people what they want to hear. How can this be good in the long term for his business? He tells people what they want to hear. That's good for business. And there's an enormous audience out there for crap. But his audience will turn on him because people don't like to be wrong and they will feel in the end ultimately stupid and he'll lose market share. Well, he's been doing this conspiracy nonsense thing for for decades now. So there is an enormous audience out there for stupidity and for moronic conspiracies. And he's very effective at feeding that audience. So if he's been successful making money from this approach for approximately three decades... I don't think it's going to end anytime soon. That's it. Bye-bye.